Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host. And today, Rob Crone joins us, a gentleman who started flying gliders with the 233 and then went on to fly with the Air Force flying T-37s and later becoming an instructor on the T-37s. He also flew the T-38 and later on the C-141. Rob flew VIP airlift on a Gulfstream for first ladies to vice presidents. Rob has flown all over the globe and now flies a 737 for Southwest. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chuck. Um, actually, you know, you and I have been trying to get together on uh, this podcast for a little while, and it just kind of is pretty serendipitous that it's this week that we finally worked it out because, believe it or not, I think what started me on my journey into aviation was the uh, Apollo 11 moon landing. My mom and I emigrated from Germany to the United States, and it was on uh, it was on that flight 50 years ago. The captain of the airplane came on and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Armstrong has just stepped on the moon." Wow! During and, during uh, the flight. Yeah, during our flight from Germany to the U.S. And so, um, you know, at that time in the U.S., uh, the whole Apollo program was was huge, and everybody talked about it. And so, of course, as a young boy. Everybody always said, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an astronaut. And eventually astronauts sort of morphed into uh, being a pilot. But it certainly, I think, was one of the, probably one of the biggest inspirations for why I wanted to get into aviation in general. Oh, very cool. Yeah, the 50th coming up. And that is basically going to be the focus at Oshkosh this year. So that would be very, that will be very interesting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Oshkosh is on my bucket list. I just have never made it out there. Not yet. Yeah, you have to do that for sure. So what started your journey in aviation? You you came to the country, then what happened after that? Well, um, one of my earliest rem- uh, memories of actually being in an airplane, aside from that flight to the U.S., was uh, a couple years after that, I was visiting some relatives in Canada, and uh, a great uncle of mine knew about my interest in aviation, and he paid for me to go up in a glider. I think at the time, I don't, my memory's a little vague. I think at the time I was about six or seven years old. I was just fascinated by soaring at that point, first of all. After that, it was a long time before I actually had an opportunity to get into the cockpit of another airplane. And again, it was soaring because I lived in Westminster, Maryland, or Manchester, Maryland. And not too far from where I lived, there was a small glider port in Woodbine, Maryland, which is closed many, many years ago. But it was one of the few places, it was probably the only place as a young teenager that I could afford on my own dime to go get in the cockpit of an airplane, which was actually a glider. That was when I started my actual first hands-on flying experiences at about 15 Do you remember which glider you were in? Was it like a 233 or? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a 233. Flew that for a couple of years. I couldn't quite follow through financially for actually even to get up to solo, but I went to the Air Force Academy uh, for college after I finished high school and I I got into the soaring program at the academy. Um, So again, that was 232s and eventually became an instructor in the glider program at the academy. Oh, very cool. We also had uh, some Grobes out there, the Grobe 103, I believe it was. Um, So that was my only 
fiberglass airplane, fiberglass sailplane that I got to fly. But mostly my glider experience was all in 233s. I love the 233. I still actually jump in it every once in a while just for that, uh, those memories. You know, that was the first thing I flew on in a glider. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and it's such a robust machine. I mean, it's just, it can take a beating and keep on ticking kind of thing, like the old Timex watch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it actually, you know, it actually works the thermals. You can work yep. the thermals with it, and it's it still flies like a nice glider. And Yep. So the Air Force, are they still big, as far as you know, on training with gliders? Well, at the Air Force Academy, they have a program uh, for the Air Force Academy cadets where they call it SOAR for All, or at least they did at the time, where uh, it just kind of gave all Academy cadets a taste of flying. Uh, it was a kind of rather inexpensive way for the Air Force Academy to do it. Uh, as far as the the Air Force in general, for someone who does not go through the Academy, they probably don't see a glider, at least not sponsored through the Air Force. So it was just it was kind of a perk at the Air Force Academy itself. Oh, very interesting. As I've discovered doing this podcast from other guests that I've interviewed uh, from other countries, and where this country, it seems that people do a lot of powered and then they find their way to gliders. Uh, and in other countries, it's very popular that they fly gliders first and then go into powered later on. So it's kind of interesting how that's kind of backwards here. But <laughs> Yeah, it is. But actually, for me, that was exactly my progression was uh, gliders first and then uh, also, uh, just before leaving the academy, we go, we went into the Air Force's version of the Cessna 172 was flight screening before we go on to pilot training after graduation from the academy. So, yeah, it was gliders first and then on to power aircraft after that. What was the difference for you when you went over to powered? What, what did you feel that was really a big difference? Um, wow, that's a tough one. It's, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is, uh, it was actually almost a little intimidating to have a big engine up in front of me. And I'm thinking about all those mechanical parts and all that horse, quote unquote, horsepower in a Cessna 172. Right. Um, which looking back now, it seems kind of silly. But uh, at the time, having flown gliders for four years or nearly four years, I was actually a little intimidated by the idea of having power out in front of me because <laughs> I knew if I, you know, in a, in a glider, if I ever lost power, I was very confident in my ability to find some place to put it down. In a Cessna 172, I was a little less confident about that. Yeah, the glide ratio goes way down for sure. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> where did you go on after that? So you're flying the 172. What? Where did your journey take you? So uh, in the Air Force, the 172 is, is used as a flight screener. They kind of just make sure that you can get up to solo in a reasonable amount of time and then assuming you get through that program then you're sent on to pilot training so i went uh, after graduation from the air force academy i went to a little town called del rio texas where there's an air force base called laughlin air force base and that's where i started air force pilot training air force calls it undergraduate pilot training and uh, the first airplane i flew there was called the t-37 it's a little side-by-side -side twin engine jet Hershey bar wing, uh, and it's a great primary trainer for uh, for pilots getting ready to go into the Air Force. And flew that for about six months, and then went on to the T-38, which uh, more people are a little familiar with the T-38, because it's the one you, you see on TV quite a bit, especially um, 
looking back at the old Apollo videos, all the astronauts, uh, the, the astronaut pilots kept current uh, in their flight training by flying T-38s. NASA still owns a lot of those. And they're the second stage trainer for Air Force pilot training. So I flew that for another six months. And then after pilot training, they decided to uh, keep me at that base uh, and make me an instructor back in the T-37, the original uh, training aircraft, the Hershey Bar Wing side-by-side uh, twin jet trainer. And I flew that for another four years down there in Laughlin. So what was the difference between like a 172 and then you go into a jet? Is it just everything happens much faster? Can Can you tell me a little bit about that? Boy, that's hard to describe too. It's, yeah, things happen faster, but it's hard to describe the difference. It's it's a whole nother world, the idea that you're now wearing a flight suit and a parachute and a helmet and you're sucking air through an oxygen hose and it is it is just a whole nother world. I can't even really describe it unless you've actually been there. And looking back now, most people most people kind of look at the T thirty seven and they uh it was kind of, it was a little bit of a point of ridicule amongst Air Force pilots because it's such a tiny little jet. But the first time you get into that thing, it's so cool to imagine this idea that here you are becoming an Air Force pilot sitting in a twin engine jet uh, after, you know, previously having flown a single engine prop airplane. Yeah, that has to be like a huge difference. I mean, just yep. has to, it must have felt really cool to get in the jet, you know, and gear up yeah. and <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. And again, a little intimidating because there's a lot of pressure, uh, Air Force pilot training, uh, there's there's a fair washout rate. If you don't keep up, um, you know, you get washed out. And so there's a lot of pressure to perform. Uh, and there's a so, so much new to learn in a very short period of time. What did you fly after after flying that? So I was uh, after being an instructor in, down in Del Rio for about four years, I moved on to the C-141 um, and I flew that out of Tacoma, Washington. Uh, McCord Air Force Base, and that's a, a large four-engine jet transport, international cargo, and it has since been retired. Uh, people who may keep up on Air Force airplanes uh, would recognize its replacement today as the C-17, uh, replaced the C-141 that I flew. But that was my first uh, first time flying big airplanes and literally going around the world. It was crazy. Here, here I was a 29-year-old, young, dumb, and uh, the Air Force gives me the key to an airplane and a crew of five to seven people and says, go around the world and make it happen. (laughs) Once again, some of the opportunities that that I had in the Air Force are just crazy, wonderful, uh, and exciting all at the same time. So you got out of the Air Force then, and what happened after that? Oh, no, actually, that was just my second assignment in the Air Force. From there, I went. Oh, on okay. To, uh, yeah. From there, I went on to uh, Andrews Air Force Base just outside of Washington, D.C. I flew VIP airlift there in Gulfstream aircraft. The Air Force owns several Gulfstreams. And again, people might be familiar with that. It's a pretty popular business jet among the wealthy crowd. Uh, but the Air Force uses them for VIP airlift. So we flew White House staff from First Lady, Vice President, uh, other White House staff, senior Pentagon officials, and uh, congressmen, again, all around the world in Gulfstream airplanes. That was another another mission that was just the worldwide experience that I got to do in that airplane 
and the people I got to work with, just fantastic. It's, I mean, I've gotten to see places thanks to the Air Force and thanks to those, uh, those assignments that I had. I've gotten to see places around the world that very few people can say they've seen. Uh, I've been everywhere from Cambodia, India, Egypt, Libya, all over Europe, all over Southeast Asia. It's just, like I said, the opportunities were just fantastic. Yeah, that would be an expensive ticket if uh, just <laughs> somebody tried to do that without, yeah. <laughs> without the help yeah. of the Air Force. Yep, certainly. What are you flying right now? So um, after I retired out of the Air Force, I flew, I continued to fly Gulfstreams in the private world for a little while. And uh, about three years ago, I got hired on by Southwest Airlines. So I'm now flying the 737 for Southwest. How is the 737 compared to the other aircraft you've flown, like the Golf? Yeah, the the 737 is, uh, you know, we fly a pretty updated version of it, the 700 and the 800, but ultimately it's still a 1960s design. I always found it kind of interesting that the Gulfstream private airplanes I flew uh, were much more modern technologically, especially when it came to cockpit displays and navigation systems and um, synthetic vision systems and all these things that are pretty cutting edge in the private jet world. Um, they're slow to make their way into the, the big jets of uh, commercial aviation. So we do have some fairly uh, updated video screens uh, up in front of the 737 now, but ultimately the technology of the rest of the airplane is still based in 1960s designs as far as the rest of the systems on the airplane. Obviously, the, the aircraft are new, but the original designs are still uh, pretty old. I guess if it works, then keep keep using it, right? Yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. Uh, anytime an aircraft manufacturer comes up with uh, or tries to update designs, that all has to run through FAA certification processes, and that gets very expensive. Plus, then pilots have to be retrained and mechanics have to be retrained. So there's there's some advantage to not changing uh, aircraft designs, especially, like you said, if something works um, and there's not a strong need to update it, change it, fix it, then uh, then the manufacturers will leave it alone. So I, I know you've had a lot of flights, but if you would pull one out of your logbook, whether it be general aviation or the Air Force or Southwest you're flying now, do you have maybe a couple flights that really stand out that you remember well and was one of your most memorable flights? Yeah, you know, when you go when you go to interviews for whether it's for the a Southwest interview or even for some of the private jet jobs, that's kind of a it's kind of a normal question to say, well, tell us about one of your more memorable flights. And so one that I actually used in my interview for Southwest was uh, a mission I flew in the C-141. Now, one of the things that was really fun about the C-141 was that we could aerial refuel the airplane. And so uh, here, here you get to bring uh, over 100,000 pounds of aluminum uh, at 25,000 feet up to another 125,000 pounds of aluminum right in front of you and you're about 15 feet away and you make contact with a refueling boom and take on about 15,000 pounds of fuel. And that is an amazing experience. And uh, I think probably the most rewarding time I actually got to do that was for a live mission when I was doing a, uh, a medical evacuation uh, for some critical medical patients that were in Germany 
and uh, needed to get to Texas, which are two of the major medical facilities in the uh, in the military. It was Ramstein, Germany, um, and then transporting people down to uh, San Antonio, Texas. And so on this particular mission, in order to make that range in the 141, it was going to have to be a refuel. So we get about three quarters of the way from Germany coming across the Atlantic Ocean, and we get a call from air traffic control, and they're telling us that our refueling tanker uh, has had a mechanical malfunction and isn't going to be able to meet us. And so now I'm thinking, well, that means we're not going to make it to Texas. And I tell the medical staff on board the airplane that we're not going to be able to make it to Texas. And they all kind of droop. And I get the impression that that's not good for our patients. And uh, as we're starting to make plans for where we're going to go, since we can't make it to our destination, uh, air traffic control called us back and said, hey, your tanker made it after all. And, uh, you know, they're about 100 miles out in front of you. And so we got our aerial refueling accomplished and uh, we're able to make it make it on down to Texas and complete our mission and probably saved a couple of lives of some critical medical patients. And that was one that uh, I found very, very rewarding. Yeah, for sure. Uh, close call, but it all worked out. Yep. That's some serious uh formation flying very close formation flying yeah yeah like i said that was definitely probably one of the most fun things that i got to do in the air force because of the challenge and just the the cool factor (laughs) yeah for sure so when you're out flying general aviation what do you fly usually well i haven't had much opportunity in the past few years but i like uh i like the 172 but i also like the uh the the Piper Warriors. I kind of have a little bit of a preference for lower wing airplanes. Uh, that's why I like flying the Grobe 103 in the glider world. I just, I, I don't know what it is. I just like the low wing airplane a little bit better. And so, yeah, the Pipers, I have a, I have a bit of a sweet spot for those when I'm out flying, but it's been a while, uh, kind of the last couple of years with family and finances. It just hasn't left a lot of room and time and money to do the uh, private flying anymore. Yeah, I understand that for sure. The, <laughs> yeah. I, I did have an opportunity to fly the Grove, and it is a very, very nice glider, and yeah. it's it is a lot of fun to fly. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed flying that airplane, and I can, I don't even remember there was one other one. Uh, it was a Schweitzer. I want to say a one twenty two. Does that sound right? It's been so long. Is this a little uh, one seater, low wing Schweitzer? Was it a 126? Well, yeah, I think it was a 126. Yes. Got that, to fly that, is, that a few times, too. That was a fun little airplane. Yeah, it's kind of like a little sports car. That's what it reminds me of, like a sports <laughs> car in the air, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was probably the time I scared myself the most was in a 126 ride, actually. Luckily, I was solo, so I didn't scare anybody else. <laughs> what, what happened? What scared you? So... Um, this was again uh, at the Air Force Academy. It was uh, I was still a very young and inexperienced pilot, but we had the 126 there, and so I was out for a quick solo ride on the 126. And getting towards the end of the sortie, you know, the altitude's decaying a little bit, so I started heading back towards the traffic pattern. I get it to the traffic pattern entry point, and I still had uh, a couple hundred feet before I needed to enter the pattern. So I thought, well, I'll just do one more quick 360 and then enter the pattern. Well, I wrapped up the uh, turn a little bit too tight and a little too slow and uh, ended up entering a spin oh right pattern, wow <laughs> right at pattern entry oh um as you know have you flown the 126 
Yes, I have. Yeah, it recovers very quickly. So, so I ended up, I ended up entering the pattern only about 300 below optimum pattern altitude, but still, it was enough to uh, get my pulse racing. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. Um, So, yep, still made it to the field just fine. But yeah, that was uh, that's probably one of my most memorable, scary experiences in an airplane, (laughs) and all (laughs) self-inflicted. Right. I was flying uh, one day and I was coming in and and everything was clear and then somebody pulled out on the runway and I'm like okay I'll I'll just wait a little bit right well obviously you know you're flying a glider so it's like probably not a great idea to wait too long but <laughs> yeah I, I'm like I'm good I'm good I waited I waited and I was like okay I got to go in well they finally got out of the way and I came in and I must have been like 30 feet above the trees because there's a tree line right there on run, runway two nine. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was like, I'm not doing that again. I'm just going to go for the grass or something <laughs> next time. <laughs> that yeah. was too close for comfort. Yeah, sometimes trying to stretch it out. And you hear those stories a lot in the aviation world for powered aircraft. You know, somebody who's trying to stretch one one last little bit of extra flying time or extra couple miles and running out of fuel. In the, in the glider world, you don't really have the concern about running out of fuel. You just run out of altitude. So I, I have uh, one last question for you. Do you have any advice for someone that maybe is fairly new at flying, how to be a better pilot and a safer pilot? Phew. Boy, that's a tough one. I would say for one, read. Read everything you can find to read, especially when it comes to accident profiles, because you can, you really can learn from other people's mistakes. Um, sometimes uh, raising my kids, I think, you know, sometimes, sometimes we don't learn from other people's mistakes. We have to learn for ourselves. In the aviation world, there are so many ways where you actually can learn from other people's mistakes by reading incident reports. Um, and I'd say that's probably one of the biggest things I would advise people. I agree with you on that one for sure. Very good advice. Rob, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I greatly appreciate it. It's been great to hear your story. And I'd love to talk to you again sometime, catch up with you. Sure thing. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to come up and see your uh, glider port sometime. Yes, and, you have to uh, do that. Get my, uh, dip my toes back in the glider world. Come out and fly the 126 again. <laughs> yeah, maybe after a little practice in the 232. Of course. Or the 233. <laughs> All right, thank you, Chuck. You're welcome. Thank you, Rob. And as always, thank you for tuning in, taking your time out of your busy schedule and listening to the podcast. If you want to check us out online and check out some pictures of all of our guests and check out our guest pilot page, you can do that at SoaringTheSky.com. While you're online, you may want to check out the SSA. They have lots of great information and even some information how you can get your first intro ride in a glider. And we're on social media, Instagram, Soaring the Sky Podcast, as well as Facebook, under the same name, Soaring the Sky Podcast. And if you haven't already, check out our previous episodes. Also, if you are a pilot and you would like to share one of your interesting stories or how you got into flying gliders, feel free to get a hold of me. It's chuck at soaringthesky.com. Just email me there. Or maybe you're a listener and you just want to say hey and let us know where you're listening from. Great to hear from you. We hope you join us right here next time with another great guest on Soaring the Sky.